Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. Winston Churchill famously said that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. After the end of the Cold War, many in the West thought the puzzle was solved. The Soviet Union had collapsed. Russians would embrace free markets and even liberal democracy. And President Obama could dismiss Russia as merely a regional, not a great power. Case closed. It's fair to say that my guest today wasn't buying any of it. Tom Graham has spent much of the last 40 years focused on understanding Russia, not as the West wanted it to be, but as it was and now is. He has just published Getting Russia Right, which I think should be on everyone's must-read list, at least anyone who cares about the future of global order, never mind the war in Ukraine. Tom, welcome back to New Thinking for a New World. Great to be with you again. You've written a fabulous book. What I particularly like is that you checked your passport and your biases at the door and tried to explain how Russians think about themselves, think about the United States, and about their place in the world. That is fundamentally different uh, from the usual point of departure that everyone wants to be just like us, and the analytic challenge is to measure why they are failing to be just like us. Uh, it, it's, I know of no other analyst that's actually trying to do that these days. So congratulations. Thank you. Let me start with a quote from your book. While the prevailing view in the United States that Russia is in decline is that Russia is in decline, it is worth remembering that Russia has been among the most successful countries in world history, at least in terms of what it values, geopolitical advance, and international sway. Why is that history relevant? Well, the history is relevant because it helps you understand what the Russian mindset it is, is at this point and how they look at the world and what they think their possibilities are. But it also drives home the point that for Russia being a great power uh, lies at the core of their national identity. Throughout history, the preservation of the state, the preservation of Russian territorial integrity has been the paramount priority of the Russian elites. And that means that even when Russia appears to be down and out, uh, as many thought in the 1990s, there's still this tremendous will to rebuild Russia, to regain that status, to play a, a major role in the global stage. That is something uh, that Americans need to understand, something that we forgot in the early post-Soviet period. Well, it's certainly not the first time in their history that the Russians were down and out. Uh, with a history, an imperial history as long as theirs, it happens from time to time. But every time they've recovered. That said, people seem to think, too many people seem to think that we are in a new era, that history doesn't matter. Does their history still count, I guess is the question. I obviously think that history still counts. Uh, we tend to be in a historical society, as you know, Alan. But when we think about history, uh, we have a peculiar uh, approach to it, particularly when it comes to to the United States. You know, despite the, the fact that we've had ups and downs in our history, 
the narrative that most Americans remember from, from their schooling is this rising arc of, of prosperity and growing power and of, of progress in the United States. Perhaps some people are doubting that today, uh, but nevertheless, that's the, uh, I think that's the narrative most of us were brought up with. Uh, Russians have never thought uh, of history as a, a positive arc of progress going forward. It's always been cyclical. But the important point for the Russians is that no matter how bad it might appear at this point, we will return. We will resurrect ourselves. We will be the great power that we're destined to be. And then they'll enjoy a period uh, of tremendous influence on the global stage uh, before that process of a decline sets in again and resets the cycle. You talk about Russians, and you've already mentioned the elite. To what extent are you thinking about Russian elite, Russian people? Are they one and the same? How do they interact, particularly in today's world? Well, you know, they're certainly not one and the same. I mean, there's a stark difference between the Russian elite and the population as a whole. In fact, if you look at Russian history, uh, the Russian state is a political military organization. Uh, it's based on a very small group of individuals. Uh, and that Russian state has extracted resources from the population as a whole uh, in order to advance its own interests with little regard for the welfare of the population in most, in most of history. Nevertheless, you have this curious fact that every time the Russian state has collapsed uh, in, in history, uh, and it has uh, several times in the past four or 500 years, twice in the 20th century that we know of, the population has basically supported the resurrection of this historical Russian state. So despite the fact that society has been exploited by the state, the people, for some reason, always want to see that state resurrected. Why? I think in part because uh, Russians tend to be very conservative. Uh, they have lived in a uh, in an environment where security has always been uh, an uncertain uh, enterprise. Uh, they fear chaos. They fear the lack of order. And the state provides at that fundamental order that allows Russians to then engage in uh, their daily lives. So they're looking for order. They're looking for a resurrection of the state. That is in harmony with what the elites want themselves. That's a terrifically important point because there has been certainly over the past year or two, a lot of wishing and hoping on editorial pages that suddenly the Russian people are going to throw off their chains, throw off this uh, evil air quotes, uh, President Putin and become democratic. Is that all hogwash? Well, we certainly haven't seen that, right? Um, That's a true statement. Right, exactly. The belief in the 1990s, you know, right after the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, certainly in the American perspective, is that Russia would have to move in the direction of free market democracy if it were going to uh, survive and thrive in the 21st century. I think the two of us are old enough to remember the end of history, the beginnings of, of globalization, and all that drove, uh, I think, a a deep belief in the United States that Russia had to move in this direction. The Russian elites or the president at that time, Boris uh, Yeltsin, also talked about uh, moving in a democratic direction. But if we looked further beneath this, the surface, what we would have discovered was that there wasn't a, 
a turnover uh, in the elite, a radical turnover in the elite uh, between the Soviet period, the post-Soviet period. In fact, the Russian political elite was very much the second and third echelon of the Soviet elite. And they shared its, its basic attributes. And that was a concern for the survival of the state in an authoritarian mode and for Russia as a great power on the global stage. That's what we missed. The population as a whole, uh, I would argue, lost whatever faith it might have had in democracy in the 1990s, in part as a consequence of American policy, Russian realities. Uh, If you look at the elections to the Russian parliament, 1993 and 1996, uh, the people who won were the communists, And the liberal uh, Democrats were really misnamed, were really an authoritarian nationalist group. Uh, And yet the government tried to push through radical reform against the wishes of the people. The people came to the conclusion that elections didn't matter, that democracy was a a fraud, uh, and therefore had lost faith in it. I want to segue to President Putin and to do so by repeating something I heard recently from the Ukrainian Nobel Peace Prize winner, Oleksandra uh, Matvichuk. She said, Putin is not afraid of NATO. He's afraid of democracy, which plays into this notion that we in the West really, really want to believe that the Russian democratic moment lies ahead of them. Yes, historically, it's never happened, but it still could happen and will happen if we can just be clever enough to encourage it. You've already said that that's not the history. Why is that notion not someday going to be true? And why is it not the future as well? Is that the question that you're asking? It's not the future. It's not been the past. It's it's not the past. It's certainly not in the near-term future. And it's not, as I would argue, in a future that has any relevance for policymaking today. Uh, If you look at the situation in Russia right now, the Kremlin has basically dismantled any uh, type of uh, democratic political organization in the country. Uh, its most famous and well-known leader, I would say Navalny, uh, is in a prison camp in Siberia. Uh, other uh, uh, potential or leaders of a, a democratic movement have also been in, put in prison or go, been driven into exile. The organizational structure uh, of Navalny's organization has been dismantled over the past couple of years. Uh, But beyond that, there's nothing in the polling, uh, the reaction of the Russian people uh, that we we have seen that suggests that they are demanding a more open democratic society. Uh, You know, we've already talked a little bit about the history and how the population has reacted when the state has declined or collapsed. Uh, I think those things still drive Russians uh, today. Uh, We also see uh, despite all our hopes for what the Ukrainians might do on the battlefield, that the population of Russia supports, by and large, uh, what uh, Putin is doing in Ukraine today. So I just don't see the possibility for a, a democratic breakthrough, as I said, in any time that makes sense uh, for American policymaking. Let's talk specifically about President Putin. Does he retain the support of the elite on the one hand? And the population, on the other hand, I'm going to ask you in a couple minutes about the election. Uh, spoiler alert, we know who's going to win. Right. But, it, but 
elections in Russia, I suspect, mean something other than late night wondering, oh, my God, what's going to happen tomorrow? Or waiting up to see what the results are uh, in that nail biter to see whether, you know, your your candidate will actually be elected or you're going to have to live with the opposition. Uh, I think you're you're absolutely, absolutely right about that. You know, Putin uh, does depend on the elite for his position. After all, it's an elite based uh, political system. Uh, We've already talked a little bit uh, about that. I think if you look at uh, the run-up to the, the conflict in Ukraine, for example, uh, there was very little public elite support for moving militarily into Ukraine, you know, certainly at the, in, on the dimensions that Putin ultimately did in February uh, of last year. Uh, that said, over the past 18 months, uh, we've seen most of the uh, political elite uh, rally behind, behind the Kremlin. Those that had doubts that were in key government positions have stayed in key government positions. Uh, there were reports that many people in the economic ministries were opposed to the to the military operation, yet they've stayed in place. And they're one of the reasons that Russia has managed uh, to cope with Western sanctions as effectively have over the past over the past several years. Those who tend to be critical of the regime uh, in public are those who are uh, critical because of the tactics that have been employed. They want to see a more forceful push against the Ukraine. And those who still retain doubts about the, the conflict, harbor doubts about where Putin is taking the country, have largely gone silent or left the country. Uh, so for all practical purposes, uh, no matter what their attitudes were before the conflict began, the elites are basically implicated uh, in this in this conflict right now and are supporting Putin. The population more generally, the Western view tends to be conscription, casualties, economic constraints, partially by because of the sanctions, partially because of mismanagement, and the sense that ordinary Russians are disgruntled. Now, my reading of history says that ordinary Russians are always disgruntled, uh, but are what what is your sense of the popular mood? You've already said that you think there is support for what President Putin is doing. Is it real? You know, as, as near as we can judge, the answer is yes. When uh, Putin announced his partial mobilization last fall, the West focused on all those people and young men who have fled Russia. Uh, and we ignored the fact that 300,000 Russians were mobilized and sent to, sent to the front in one way or another with very little resistance internally. You know, I thought that casualties would have an important impact on Russian attitudes towards the war. Apparently not. You know, if you get, you know, people outside of Russia where most of the casualties uh, have, uh, have occurred or outside of Moscow uh, still support the war. Uh, in one fashion or another, in part because, you know, they depend on the state for their own livelihood. That said, uh, it's clear that uh, the Kremlin is worried about the reactions in the big cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg, for example, uh, where there are, where there has been greater Western influence, where there is, you know, some underlying discontent with the conflict. The mobilization basically hasn't affected the big cities. Uh, the casualties are not from families in Moscow, living in Moscow or St. Petersburg. If you go to Moscow today, Moscow looks like a normal European city. Uh, 
modern, clean. You would never guess that, that, that the country is at war. And so the Kremlin has made it, been very careful that it has laid the burden of this conflict on that part of the population, uh, which is basically not politically active and has spared uh, Moscow the consequences of the uh, of the conflict so far. That, I think, is critical to, in the Kremlin's mind, to political stability in Russia going forward. In that context, what are your takeaways from the Prigozhin episode? On the one hand, what does it tell you about the process of succession, which will eventually happen? And what does it tell you about how well we understand the dynamics of that process? Well, there's a lot we still don't know about the Prigozhin uh, affair, um, and, and a lot we won't know for some for some time. And the Russian, uh, the Kremlin certainly has no interest in uh, in making public exactly what happened and what his deliberations were uh, at that time. Uh, but you know, my take is that the mutiny itself had very few chances for success. It appears to have been done, something done at the spur, spur of the moment, not thought through uh, entirely. It didn't have uh, significant uh, elite support. And Putin actually, in retrospect, handled this crisis uh, quite well. Uh, he did get Putin to step down uh, and not drive his forces into Moscow. He then used Prigozhin, and then he uh, then um, you know used the the weeks after that to purge anybody who thought was disloyal during that moment, particularly within the military, I'd imagine more broadly. Uh, and he also used that period to figure out what the Wagner Group really was and what all its elements were. And my guess is once they figured out who the disloyal figures were and had dealt with them, once they had an understanding of what this Wagner empire really was, what all the little pieces of it were, uh, Prigozhin no longer needed to be alive. Uh, And that's the reason he met um, his death in in August. The Kremlin has divided up the uh, Wagner empire among its loyalists. It will continue in some uh, in some way. So uh, what many people considered when it occurred a, a sign of weakness on, on Putin, he has turned, uh, I would argue, over the past uh, three months into a tool to consolidate his control over the elites. So he's in a stronger position now than he was in, in June of this year. And what does it tell us about succession? how that process might work. Well, look, I mean, there are three ways succession happens in Russia uh, right now. Putin dies, Putin voluntarily steps down, uh, or Putin uh, Putin is ousted for one reason uh, or another. You know, the most difficult scenario for the, the Russian political system to deal with is sudden death. Because the elites don't have time to sort of sort out who is going to be the successor and how they're going to maintain uh, this vast patronage network as much intact uh, as possible. You know, if Putin voluntarily steps down, again, we see no evidence that he's planning to do that at this point. Uh, He's still a healthy 71 years old, uh, looking forward to to many, many more years in power, uh, I would presume. But if he were to decide to step down uh, voluntarily, uh, he would certainly choose a successor. They would sort all these things out uh, and then reach... uh, a consensus on who the successor should be as a way, again, of maintaining stability within the state. Uh, If he's ousted, that would almost certainly occur 
uh, in the way Khrushchev was moved in 1964. That is an elite conspiracy that uh, includes some of the people with guns, the military, uh, the special services. They push him aside. They put someone in his place to maintain, maintain stability. Now, in all these scenarios, it will take a number of years for the new leader or leaders to consolidate their position. Uh, but I don't think you're going to see the radical instability that many people uh, are predicting under any of these scenarios, and certainly not ones that are going to lead to the collapse of the, of the Russian state. Thanks for listening so far. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcast. Now back to today's discussion, sponsored by the Stavros Niarchus Foundation, SNF. Let's go to the war. I've heard you argue recently that neither Ukraine and its allies, particularly the United States, nor Russia, are willing to negotiate anything now since both sides still think they can win, which means this war goes on at least another year with a who knows after that. First question, do you worry about the risk of escalation on either side that breaks out of that slow grinding war of attrition into someplace more dangerous, whether it be nuclear on on the Russian side or Ukrainian attack on Russian-based either civilian or population or, or military centers? Look, I mean, we have a curious situation uh, at this point. I think you see an escalation in what the Ukrainians are doing, an escalation uh, in the quantities and quality of weaponry that uh, we, the United States, our European allies and partners are, uh, are sending Ukraine in part because we're less concerned about Russian escalation. Uh, We're less concerned now about the possible use of a tactical nuclear weapon by Russia than we were a year ago. We're less concerned now uh, than we were a year ago about Russia extending this conflict geographically beyond beyond Ukraine, perhaps in Eastern Europe, which would bring uh, bring in NATO countries into the conflict, uh, and obligate us to defend them uh, in some way. All that, I think, is nevertheless a dangerous situation because we're getting a slow-moving escalation on the premise that Russia will not uh, escalate uh, in, uh, in, in return. We don't know where the Russian red lines are. We don't know if they have uh, exactly where they are. Uh, we may be pushing up to a moment um, when we do cross that line red line and get an escalation that we haven't anticipated. So that's my concern uh, at this point, that we're not calculating properly where the Russians are, what they see their options as, and their propensity to escalate uh, if they feel that they are being pushed towards defeat in Ukraine. At the same time, and this is one of the major points you make in your book, there's a whole portfolio of other issues that ought to be addressed between Russia and the United States, between Russia and the West, all of which seem to be on hold since the war is, is like a blood clot blocking any, any, any movement, uh, which must have its own dangers. No, I, I agree with you. I, look, I mean, we need to open up channels of communication. Uh, there's a tendency in the West to think that diplomacy is something of a reward for good behavior. Those of us who have actually engaged in this realize that diplomacy 
is a way of advancing and protecting your interests. Uh, we do need to understand uh, what Russian uh, perceptions are, uh, what their motives are, uh, how they view uh, the various uh, issues uh, that are on the, the U.S.-Russian agenda if we're going to be able to develop an effective policy and advance our interests. Uh, it's difficult to open up the channels of communication uh, at this point, uh, in part because the Russian side has tied everything to Ukraine uh, at the moment, uh, has you know, the practicing linkage uh, in, in some way. And we're not prepared to, to discuss in a forthright fashion uh, Ukraine with the Russians at this point. So we need to find a way to get around this, uh, to open up a channel of communication. Because as we've already said, there's a broad set of issues that these two countries need to discuss, starting with strategic stability, um, how we're going to manage the the large nuclear arsenals that our two countries have, questions about not only Ukraine, but the broader question, broader issue of European security. We see what's unfolding in the Middle East at this point, uh, the Arctic, Northeast Asia, all these are, are matters that are of extreme importance to the United States uh, in which Russia plays a role. And absent a, a working channel of communication, all these things are left to, to proceed on without any real direction from either Moscow or, or Washington. I think that's a dangerous situation. There seems to be a willingness in Washington to forgive whatever transgressions the Chinese might occur in an effort to have exactly the kind of dialogue you just described that cuts across all the issues, regardless of a particular problem of any given moment. But we are completely unwilling to do so with the Russians. Now, admittedly, the Chinese are not fighting a war that has gone across borders. And, and so you don't have that, that blockage. But is China part of the problem in our thinking about Russia? That's a good question. Look, we've always put China and Russia in different boxes uh, for different reasons. Our historical experience with the two countries has been uh, radically different. But if you look at it from the contemporary standpoint, I think the fundamental reason we treat China differently from the way we treat Russia is we see China as a rising power. A country, as our national security strategy uh, says, uh, has the, the political, the economic, the technological capabilities in order to shape or reshape the international order. Uh, we see Russia largely as a, as a country in decline. And uh, again, as the national security strategy uh, states, something of a nuisance, but not a country that's going to reshape the, uh, the global order. So we have respect for China where we don't have respect for Russia. Uh, we need to reach out to China because we're going to talk to someone uh, who really has capabilities to alter the environment in which we live. We don't see that, uh, that same need uh, to talk to Russia. Uh, so that, I would argue, is a fundamental difference uh, between the two countries. Uh, you know, we do look at the, uh, the Sino-Russian strategic alignment. I would argue that should be of more concern than it is at, uh, at this point to the senior levels in Washington. Uh, but we don't seem to be terribly concerned about how close that arrangement uh, has become in recent years. And I think the, the reason for that uh, is that in Washington's calculation, 
the challenge that we face from China is not significantly uh, deepened if you add Russia to the equation. Uh, and so there's nothing that we can do towards Russia that would attenuate the, uh, its ties with China, uh, in which uh, the benefits from that would outweigh the cost as we see it. You know, rather, what we're trying to do now uh, in our relationship with China is to ensure that they don't provide greater sort of military support, economic support uh, for Russia, and in our mind, uh, prolong the conflict in Ukraine. So again, very different countries, very different attitudes towards them. And you see that uh, play out in the way we, uh, we conduct our diplomacy. I confess I'm actually beginning to suspect that we're hoping China can manage Russia for us in a way that I think is nuts. Uh, but the, the body language suggests that there's some people that don't think it's as nutty as, as I do. Well, this is, again, this is curious. If you look at one of the axioms uh, of American foreign policy from the late 19th century uh, up to recent history, is that we always were opposed to allowing a hostile power, a coalition of hostile powers, dominate the important strategic zones of Eurasia, Europe and East Asia. Right. That's why we went to war uh, in, uh, in, 19, in 1916. That's why we went to war against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan during the Second World War. That was the whole reason behind or one of the major reasons behind the Cold War. Uh, and here we've got China uh, linked up with Russia. We've got a dynamically growing society, technological competitor uh, that basically we're ceding the resources of Russia to. Uh, at, a, at a tremendous discount. China plus Russia does dominate East Asia. China plus Russia does have the potential to have remarkable influence on, on Europe. So you would think that we would be interested in, to the degree that we can, of pulling those two countries uh, apart, um, allowing China to manage the Russia problem for us uh, to get the access to the oil and gas, the other mineral resources it needs to fuel its economy, uh, allowing China to work with Russia so that it can dominate uh, the Arctic, not only the resources that are there, but the maritime routes in the Arctic, would strike me as contrary to America's long-term national interests. And yet, uh, we don't seem to be terribly concerned about that. Tom, let me end with what is probably an unfair question. You've spent your whole career thinking about Russia, living and traveling in Russia, advising governments and corporations about Russia, writing about Russia. That puts you on a very short list of Westerners who reasonably have claimed to understand the place. What do you think Russia looks like in, say, 2030? We're never supposed to speculate that far in advance. But look. No, but the far in advance speculation is the easiest one. Yeah, no. Who will remember your answer or my question? Yeah, no, exactly. You know, I tend to believe that history plays a large role in shaping the way countries um, develop over time, the way their elites think, uh, and, and so on. Out of this conflict in, in Ukraine, uh, we are going to see a Russia that remains a major challenge to the United States. Certainly, it will remain a major challenge to the United States in 2030. We've already talked about the improbability of a democratic breakthrough, so we're not going to have a Russia that shares our values. I also think 
the, the notion that Russia is going to collapse uh, is far-fetched at this point. There just aren't the preconditions uh, for that type of development in Russia. And so what, what we're going to see is the emergence of a Russia that is some version of its historical self. It's going to be authoritarian in its political system. It's going to be expansionary in its foreign policy. It's going to be lagging uh, technologically and economically behind uh, the United States, behind the West as a whole, and yet is going to be determined to play the role of a great power on the global stage. It will be a country that has assets to bring to bear, uh, the largest nuclear arsenal, the largest endowment of natural resources in the world, a central location in Eurasia that allows it to project its power and pathologies into Europe, the Middle East, South Asia, uh, Northeast Asia. Uh, and it's going to have a permanent veto-wielding seat on the UN Security Council. And it's going to be a country uh, that will be a rival to the United States, as in fact Russia has been almost from the moment the United States emerged as a major power on the global stage at the very end of the 19th century. We don't know what the details are going to be. Obviously, that will depend on a lot of uh, specific developments over the next five years. But we're going to have a big country that is going to play a role on the global stage that will impact on our interests. And the challenge for the United States going forward uh, I would argue, is to turn what is now an adversarial relationship, not into a partnership, that's not in the cards, but too different to have a partnership, but to what I call a constructive competition uh, in which uh, we keep that competition within certain limits, reduce to a minimum the risk of a military confrontation that could escalate to the nuclear level, uh, move the competition as much as possible out of the military realm, to the economic, the information, the cultural, and so forth. That is a challenge for the United States. Uh, I think if we can achieve that, that's actually a success, something that we can live with. Uh, and that should be the goal that we set for ourselves over the next five to 10 years. And as you've argued, that requires the D word, diplomacy. We actually have to talk to them. Absolutely. We will get nowhere without diplomacy. We have to talk to them. Uh, I think... This final point here, uh, post-Putin, we will get the reemergence uh, of a, uh, a pragmatic Russian leadership, uh, much more than we have at this point with Putin himself. Uh, and that allows for the type of diplomacy, the types of compromises that will satisfy Russia, but also advance our national interests. Tom, thank you very much for this conversation. I do want to again say that the book really does deserve to be on everybody's, not just on their on their bed stand, but actually in in their reading. Uh, Getting Russia Right is an important contribution to a conversation that we ought to be having as we go towards our own election next year. Again, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for a New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.